Good evening, and welcome to the African American Department of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Vivian Fisher, manager of the department, and it is my pleasure to introduce this evening's guest speaker, our Writers Live for our Writers Live series, Sadika Johnson. Sadika Johnson is a former public relations manager. Also, she is a motivational speaker, inspirational blogger, novelist, and meditation teacher. Before perfecting her own craft and becoming an author, Johnson spent several years working with well-known authors such as J.K. Rowling, B.B. Moore Campbell, Amy Tan, and Bishop T. Jakes. She is the co-author of the 12th Street Press Publishing Company, which released her first novel, Love in a Carry-On Bag, in 2012, which was the recipient of the 2013 Phyllis Wheatley Award for Best Fiction and the 2012 USA Best Book Award for African American Fiction. Johnson will discuss her latest work this evening, Second House from the Corner, which has been described as, quote, absolutely amazing, best metaphors, refresh, refreshing, and engaging, unquote. Please welcome to Baltimore, Sadika Johnson. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming out on this rainy Tuesday. Um, I know that there are a lot of places you can be, so I thank you so much for choosing to be here with me. So I... Um, I like to say that God never puts a desire in your heart that you cannot manifest. I started off as a theater major in school. I wanted to uh, be an actress. And so I went to theater school. But halfway there, I kind of realized that I kind of need to get a job when I graduate from college. And I don't want to be a professional waitress. So I switched my, my, um, my major to communications. And from there, I went into the publishing world. And um, I was a publicist and I worked at Scholastic and it was kind of there I got the bug that I wanted to write. I was around books all the time. Um, I was always an avid reader. When I was a kid, I would go to the library every Monday and I would dress up. It was a big occasion for me. And I would check out seven books and I would read a book a day and then I would do the same thing the next week. So working in publishing was kind of a no brainer. And there I got to work with uh, J.K. Rawlings. And it was before she was, you know, the big J.K. Rawlings of the Harry Potter series. And it was authors like that who kind of encouraged me to go ahead and put pen to paper. Um, I worked with Ruby Bridges and Walter Dean Myers. And then I went on to G.P. Putnam's Son, and I worked in adult publishing books. Now, working at Scholastic kind of felt like getting my undergraduate degree. By the time I got to Putnam, it was definitely graduate school. The stakes was a lot higher. The authors were New York Times bestsellers. I worked with Catherine Coulter and Amy Tan and Rebecca Walker and Bishop T.D. Jakes. And so the stakes, B.B. Moore Campbell. So the stakes were a lot higher. And um, I learned a lot. And I I felt kind of like uh, I was there to kind of learn the business so that when it was my turn to be the author, because I went there with this this manuscript, my first manuscript, Love in a Carry-On Bag, I had it kind of always with me. And my thought was that I was going to learn the business because when it was my turn to be an author, I didn't want anybody to pull the wool over my eyes. I wanted to know exactly what I was getting myself into. So I would write on the train. I lived in New Jersey and uh, worked in New York City, and I would write on the train. 
every day. And then at four o'clock, I would close my office door and I would put everything into the computer. And I like to always say that if corporate America knew what they were paying us for, none of us would have a job. So that was where I got my writing done. And um, I was working on my first novel for about seven or eight years before I decided that it was time for me to have a baby, get married, and finish this novel. And I felt that I had kind of paid my dues in publishing. I worked for six years and that I should be able to get a publishing deal just like that, that it would happen, it would be quick. Everybody kind of knew me as a publicist and I was going to get a deal. Well, I got this very prominent agent in New York City, and one by one, every single editor turned my first book down. And so now I'm up to two children, and I'm home, and I'm hormonal, and I'm feeling terrible, and I can't believe that I can't get this book sold. And so my husband and I went out to dinner, and he said, you know, I don't understand what's the big deal. This is the age of self-publishing. There's so many small little presses popping up, and there's e-books, and there's all these things going on. You know, why don't we just go ahead and publish the book ourselves? But the, the desire that God had placed into my heart was that I wanted to be like the authors that I was the publicist for. I wanted a big house to back me. I wanted, I wanted all of that. I wanted a great editor. I wanted a team behind me. And so when I was telling him this, he said, well, why don't we just hire an editor? And when I say the thought had never occurred to me that it was just that easy to get started was to first hire an editor, it was like the universe was waiting for me. It was waiting for me to say yes to this dream that was already waiting on me. It was just waiting for me to say yes. And so I found an editor, and one by one, every single person I needed to bring the book alive came into my life. I got a distribution deal. I found a publicist. Um, we, we found a warehouse. I had a web designer. And everything started to move. And so Love in a Carry-On Bag was published in 2012. And um, as she said, I won the Phyllis Wheatley Award and the USA Best Book Award. And it did really, really well. I say the book put me on the map. But this desire won't go away, that I want this big publishing house to, to, pick, to pick me and to publish me. And so when I finished uh, Second House from the Corner, my editor said to me, you know, I think we could give it another try. Maybe we should go back to the publishing houses with this book. And so I did. And um, my agent now calls me a few nights before um, the book is going to close. And she says, you know... We have a few editors that are interested in your book. Now, remember, the first book, I couldn't get anybody interested. And now she says, we have a few editors that are interested. And so I'm giving them until 12 o'clock tomorrow to put their offers on the table, and we'll take it from there. And so I went from the girl who nobody wanted to publish to three major publishing houses wanting to buy Second House from the Corner. And uh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, we sold the book uh, to St. Martin's Press, and it was because they offered us a two-book hardcover deal. So uh, it came out in February, and my second book is coming out. Or, well, it'll be my third book, but my second in the contract comes out next year. Uh, so Second House from the Corner, uh, I put a lot into this book. Uh, it's about a woman named Felicia uh, who gets married with secrets. And what starts to happen as these secrets come out of her closet? She's a stay-at-home mom, but she um, has these big dreams for herself. But she also has a past, a past that nobody knows about. And everything in her life changes with one phone call. So I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit from Second House from the Corner. 
I'm going to start right at the beginning just so that I can bring you into her her very hectic world as a as a mom of three small children. And the first chapter is entitled The Witching Hour. That four-hour window between after-school pickup and bedtime, it's like walking a tightrope with groceries in both hands. The slightest hiccup will land any mother in a quagmire with her legs in the air. For me, the whole afternoon was a fail. I locked myself out when I picked the kids up from school, but didn't notice the missing house keys until I pulled into the driveway. The snacks had been demolished at the playground, so the hunger meltdown began on the drive to my husband's office for the spare key. A drive that usually takes seven minutes, but ended up being 20 round trip because of traffic. Things got even shoddier once I discovered we were out of Kellogg's cornflakes. My children will not eat baked chicken unless I dip the pieces in buttermilk, roll them in cornflakes, and bake until crispy. The oven was preheated, the potatoes were boiling for the mash, and I was 33 minutes off schedule without the magic cereal that makes my chicken finger licking good. No time to change the dinner plan, so I swap in seasoned breadcrumbs and cross my toes that they won't notice. Mama, this doesn't taste right. My son, Rory, frowns. Just eat. There are children right down the street who are starving. But it's disgusting, whines Twyla. How does a four-year-old know what disgusting is? Just eat. I have to go pee-pee and poo-poo. Stop smiling at me. Mommy, she's smiling. Can we just have dessert? Ma? Mom? Mommy? Like a song on repeat. Like it's the last word in the English dictionary. They call mommy until my lips pucker, eyebrows knit. And it takes all of my strength not to respond with that inside voice that nobody hears. That you wish would stay quiet. That tells the truth you don't want anyone to know. That damn voice is hollering. Shut the F up. At what point do I get to shout, what the F do you want from me? Now, I wouldn't drop an F-bomb in front of the mommy crew at the park, and I hate to see parents on the streets cussing out their kids. But here in my kitchen, with everything working against me, I would like to liberate myself just once and let the profanity rip. It's the nipping at my nerves that gets me, the feasting on my flesh like starved sea urchins, them fighting like thieves for their individual piece of me, me feeling like I have nothing left to give. Any mother who says that she has never felt like her whole life was being sucked out through her nostrils is a damn liar. I feel it every day, especially when I don't get at least five hours of shut-eye like last night. Twyla, whom I call too, walked her four-year-old self in my room every hour complaining about being scared. Scared of what? The curtain, the bed, the wall. She had an excuse for each visit. Never mind that she had to walk past her father to get to me. 
They never bother him. It's always mommy. So I upped and downed all night while he slept like a hibernating black bear. Breathe. I hate when I feel like this. My chest rising and falling. Momentum of failure piled. Anxiety has swept through my belly and it is curled against my organs like a bald fist. Just one happy pill would make it all better. But I've been on the happiness comes from within kick for a few months, so no more pills. Instead, I've started tapping. Tapping out my emotions so I can get back to feeling right. It's that new technique where I say what my issue is and use my fingertips and hit my meridian points until I'm back to even. It usually takes about five minutes and several rounds before I feel centered and strong. My husband, Preston, he calls it woo-woo, but he's not home with three children all day. I am, and I have to use what I've got to carry me through. I turn my back to the kids at the kitchen table take two fingers, and tap the side of my hand while whispering my setup statement. Even though I feel stressed out, anxious, and tired of being alone and responsible for my kids, I love and accept myself. Mommy, what are you doing? Calming down. I try whispering the statement again, but Twyla is out of her seat. My stomach hurts. Rory puts his fork down. I'm full. My fingers stop. I haven't made it through one minute, much less the five I need. I take a deep breath and usher everyone upstairs. Maybe Preston will surprise me and come home early. The damn voice laughs. <laughs> when was the last time he did that? He never makes it home before their bedtime, and I bet that's on purpose. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit um, to chapter five. Um, so Felicia, again, is um, trying to make it for herself. And she has these secrets in her closet. And this phone call kind of changes everything for her. She uh, came home from picking the kids up, thinking that, you know, she was going to make this fabulous dinner. And one thing led to the one thing led to the next, and the whiting never got fried. Instead, they are munching on my go-to 10-minute meal, chicken nuggets from the toaster oven and vegetable fried rice. My salad is an afterthought, and by the time I sit down, they are nearly finished, and rice is everywhere. Would you like some more? I asked them both while spooning the baby's harvest squash from the baby's jar. More chicken nuggets, Rory chews. I'm tossing him two nuggets when the telephone rings. Preston's house rule is that no one answers the telephone during dinner. But he's not here, and I'm wondering if it's my agent with last-minute notes about my go-see tomorrow. I snatch it up and put my fingers to my lips to silence the children. Good evening, I sound cheery. I hear breathing. Hello? A man's chuckle. Hello? My, my, my. I can't believe it. His voice is low and baritoned, 
after all this time, I've finally found you. My lips part, and if my skin wasn't a decadent brown, I would have turned pasty white. Who is this, I demand, all business-like, knowing but not wanting to know? It can't be. Felicia Hayes, he produces my maiden name. Come on now, it's me, young sister. The phone slips down to my shoulder. He always called me young sister, and the sound of the nickname that I haven't heard in ages has me feeling lightheaded. My hip presses against the countertop for support. Miss Hayes, it's Mrs. Lyons. Mommy, who is that? Is it Daddy? Two looks at me with suspicious eyes, and I flick my wrist to hush her. I don't have much time. I've been down for a couple of years, but I'm on work release now. Down? As in jail down? My tongue lays heavily in my mouth, and my eyes don't blink. They got me in the hot Georgia sun, picking up trash and cutting grass along roadsides. Burning up out there in this ridiculous orange jumpsuit. Damn right embarrassing. But I'm being released and be home in a few weeks. Will you come to Philly to see me? My breathing is shallow. You have no idea how many nights I've stayed up thinking about you. Wondering. Mommy! Two is up from the table, tugging on my shirt and hollering. Hang on, please. I put the phone down. Have you lost your mind? I am on the phone. Are you finished with your dinner? Yes, ma'am, she says, all of a sudden remembering her manners. Rory, go put the television on and you two sit and watch one show. Really? He looks up surprised. There is a cardinal rule of no television during the week. Both look at me like I've lost it. Go now before I change my mind. They scramble out of the room and I let Liv down to slither after them. If I hear any arguing, I'm turning it off. I run my fingers over my hair before putting the phone back to my ear. Martin? His name feels foreign in my mouth. How did you find me? My number isn't published. Oh, don't say it like you're not happy to hear from me. How long has it been? Fifteen, sixteen years? You must be as pretty as ever. I warm from the compliment, thinking it's been more like sixteen years and five months, but I don't say it out loud. It's not like I've been counting. Or have I? I let the question go as quickly as it came. How many kids do you have? Three. Hmm. Look at my fae, all grown up. It's so good to hear your beautiful voice, he pauses. I remember how you used to walk around the church with your head held high. Couldn't keep my eyes off of you. My mind struggles with rather reminiscing with him is right. But the battle is lost and I'm head first with Martin down memory lane to that long ago place I've forgotten. His hands on my waist making me move to his beat. Slipping out with you and Daddy Gracious as Caddy was the highlight of my week. You used to like those moments, didn't you? Yes. I was a young, hungry girl, sneaking off with this man who kissed my wounds away and made them all better. 
This man who is talking in my ears like a lifetime hasn't passed and still having the same effect. It's been so long since I've laid my eyes on you. His voice feels creamy, soft, and hypnotizing. Martin could say anything to me with that voice and I'd quiver. Get down on your knees and beg, young sister. When you stopped coming to church, I missed you. Yeah, well, things happened. I snap out of it and my feet are back in reality. Back to why I stopped going to church altogether and Martin had everything to do with it. I know all about it, young sister, he soothed. We both paused, letting his words hang in the air. What do you want? I have to go now. Time's running. Can I call you again? Is this time good? Preston is never home before nine, and when I open my mouth, I'm not thinking, yeah, this, this time is good. Perfect, he replies, and I feel his, his smile through the telephone. Sweet dreams, Faye. His voice fades into the lobe of my ear. I stand there clutching the phone so long that it takes me a few seconds to realize the line went dead. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So, does anybody have any burning questions they want to ask? <laughs> yes. Sorry. So, the inspiration was a couple of things. Um, when I, my kids were younger, my kids are 8, 10, and 12 now, but when they were young, like Felicia's kids, I used to hate kind of being on the playground where mothers weren't honest with each other. I feel like nobody talked about the fact that sometimes the job really sucks. Like sometimes you just want to jump off the bridge, you know? And um, I wanted to bring that realness to Felicia. I wanted her to tell it like it was. Of course she loves her kids. Of course she loves being married. But I wanted to explore that darker side um, with her. I think um, a lot of her backstory, a lot of Felicia's backstory, um, if you keep reading ahead, you'll get to chapter seven, which I really love. Um, it's the Daddy Gracious's Church. And um, when my grandmother used to tell me her stories when she was younger, she used to go to the Daddy Grace Church in Philadelphia. And she said that her and my grandfather would go just for pure entertainment. Um, it was just a spectacle. And she described Daddy Grace kind of like with this big mane of hair and these long fingernails. And they would have the women out with the tambourines and clear the way for him to walk. And he had like these high heels, kind of like how Prince used to wear, like those little kind of heels and would stomp down the aisle. And every time she told me that story, it's like I couldn't get it out of my head. I knew I had to use it somewhere. And so I kind of developed some of those things. And she told me different things about um, people in my family and things that happened. And so I took those stories my grandmother told me, and then I put a little bit of myself in it, and then a lot of fiction, and then that's how you got Second House from the Corner. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Were you going to ask something? <laughs> oh, okay, absolutely, yes. So the question was, what was the inspiration? And it was all of that. Yes. Oh. <laughs> oh, thank you.
So what drew me to kind of write about the complexities of women is that um, I, I, I always feel like I'm kind of on a bit of a spiritual journey. And so when I get to work with these characters, I get to explore different nuances of either things that I know or things that I've heard. I'm a like a really good listener. Like it drives my husband crazy that when we go out, I'm eavesdropping on the next table always and I can repeat verbatim what they said you know um so I pay attention to to people I listen to their stories and they just drop down in me and then they just become something that I need to share and I need to tell and so with uh with the first book with love in a carry-on bag you know it was about a long distance love story that pushed back but it was also about the complexity of of dealing with a mother and daughter relationship and a father and son relationship and so for me those things are kind of like they're kind of real i try and write about real experiences that i think that people can see themselves in my stories and also use them as tools to heal because if they're dealing with some of the issues that you know my characters go through hopefully it'll be a place where they can kind of realize that they don't have to hold it in, that they can kind of get it out and use the story to be to be inspired. And I think with Felicia here and Second House from the Corner, her story wouldn't leave me alone. Like the the backstory of it wouldn't leave me alone. The fact that, you know, the se- the big secret that she had, which I won't spill right now, but that that big secret was always in the back, you know, um, I could just see it. Like I could just really see it and feel it. Um, I just felt like it needed to be said. And I, I'm I'm trying to treasure the inspiration and when characters come to me and, you know, love them and take care of them and, and try and help them to express the story they want to tell. Because I know that bugging me is really the story wanting to be told, but it's not really my story. I always feel like it's kind of, I'm the conduit. I'm the person who sits down and I type the story out. You tell me what to say and I just do it. And so, um, and that's kind of, but I like to write about things that mean something to me. So I think all of that kind of adds to the complexity of the women. I, I love women that have to be vulnerable, right? Because it's so easy for us to walk around with all these uh, masks on. And so I like to have to get to a place where we have to strip them naked in my story so that they can build themselves back up and be a better person in the end. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, let me see what else can I tell you guys. So I have another book that I finished uh, in April. I turned in my second book for the to complete my two book deal at St. Martin's Press, but it won't be the last deal, right, God? I'm gonna get another book deal. Um, but that book is called And Then There Was Me, and it's another complex woman's story. Um, she's married, and she has been moved to the suburb uh, with her husband on his on on his wanting to. Um, Because he's a lot about status and that sort of thing. And, you know, she feels a little uncomfortable. And it's a racial rub. In the story, there's a lot of racial rubs. She's half black and half Dominican. Um, She's a surrogate. Uh, She's carrying his cousin's baby. 
And then she's also dealing with the fact that her husband cheats on her. And so um, she has to kind of go through her journey to figure out whether she wants to go or stay or how she wants to fix it. So that book, I feel like, was probably the least like my own personal experiences. So it was the one that I feel like I had to really stretch on. Like with Second House from the Corner, I have three kids, you know, um, I stayed home with them. So I know what that's like. And even though I could take my own personal experience and fictionalize it, um, with, and then there was me, it was all outside of myself. It was like nothing of me that I could put in the story, which was good because I think as a writer, that really pushed me to have to kind of grow and get my imagination to move more. Um, but my editor just sent me a, uh, email yesterday to say she loved it. So I hope you guys will love it too. Yeah. So for, and then there was me. I did a lot of um, research online about surrogacy, um, about the different issues she had. I read a lot of blogs. Um, I went to a lot of places to find out why do men cheat? Why do women stay? And so I just did a lot of research on that to just try and get into the psyche of it. Um, I did a lot of research on what it feels like to be, you know, a brown person in a predominantly white neighborhood. And there was a lot of articles on it. I found a really good one in the Washington Post. And so I just, I, I research and write, I research and write, I research and write. And I kind of, some people do all the research up front and then go and write, but I kind of feel like I, I, I do it all together. I mix it up. Um, as I'm in the story, if I get to a point where I get stuck and I feel like I need more information, I just stop right there, go to Google, find an article, find a blog. Um, I've interviewed people for, and then there was me, um, to kind of get a, a more flavor of who, her name is Beatrice, to get a, a more flavor of who Beatrice was. And because she's half Dominican and half black, her mom is Dominican. My mom is black, so I don't know anything about having a Dominican mother. So I did as much research as I could, but then I hired um, a Dominican editor to just go over all those sections in the story to make sure I had the the juice and the flavor of what a Dominican how how does a Dominican mother move with her daughter? You know how does how do they love? What do they talk about? Help me drop some Spanish in there, which I don't know a lick of Spanish. So it was really good to um, to do that, and so I, I just try and I try and bring everything I have into every book. I, I really, really do. Everything that you get from me is going to be the very best that I have to offer at that moment. But it's going to still get better. Yeah. So. <laughs> Again, I know. These are just things that they just come. They just come. And from the beginning, I I kept saying, oh, B, why are you, you know, why are you, I would, I asked my characters, like, you know, are you sure? Like, you know, even from the beginning, <laughs> even from the beginning when I start trying to figure out what their names are, you know, like just the fact that her name is B and her best friend is a, is a friendship story too. I left that part out. And her best friend's name is Awilda. And so when I started the book, I, I just love the name Awilda. There's a, um, there's a, a DJ on in, um, in Newark. Um, on WBGO, Awilda Rivera, and I think that's why I thought she was going to be some sort of Spanish, but then Awilda turned out to be black, and B turned out to be half, so it's like, even though I go on a journey with what I think it is, then it, it I have to be open to the flow of whatever they tell me that this is what it is, you know, um, and so when they tell me their secrets, sometimes I'm, like I was telling Mondell, I handwrite, 
um, first before I type. And so as I'm handwriting, if something pops into the story, I'm like, I'll ask them a question like, B, are you a surrogate? Or B, did you do this? Or, you know, and then I, I write what I think the answer is. It's just a, I don't know, it's just a flow. It's just a flow. So, yeah, that's the story that came to me. So I'm fooling around with two books now for my, for my fourth book. I have a really good, um, I've never written historical anything. But living in Richmond, I just recently moved to Richmond um, about a year ago. And I lived in New Jersey for 16 years. And I feel like the moment we got to Richmond, we were slapped in the face with so much history. You know, the history of slavery, the history of the civil rights. And it's just like everywhere I go, it's like, okay, the whispers, the whispers, the whispers. And so I was on, we had friends from Jersey come down and we were on the... Um, the, the slave trail. We took the kids and we took this other family and we started to walk the slave trail along the James River and they had all these little posts about, you know, what happened. And I found the most interesting fact about, um, there was a jail called the Lumpkins, um, the Lumpkins Jail. And this was on a half acre and it had the jail, it had a tavern where he entertained potential slave owners and it had his house. Well, the most interesting thing was that he was married to a mulatto. Uh, to a half black woman, which I was like, how could this be? That was illegal in 1866. But in the records, that's what it said. And they had kids together. And I'm thinking, and their kids went, the girls went to finishing school. And so as I'm reading all of this, like my brain is just like going, my skin is standing up. And I'm like, what about those girls? Like, so, so they're being raised in the house, but the slave jail is right all on half acre. So the slave jail is there. And it was the most notorious jail like slaves didn't just come here to be sold but they also came to be to be um, chastised and so some of them came because they were bad because he was known to just be torturous um so so I'm like how does psychologically this feel to the women so I'm so interested in the the women of the story so of course I would fictionalize it because I definitely am not a historian um so I kind of have that idea kind of juicing in my head. I'm scared because that's 1866. And what the heck do I know about 1866, right? <laughs> but it will be a lot of fun to write. And then I have a more contemporary um, a more contemporary novel about another complex woman. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking about this young girl who um, is growing up in the city of Philadelphia. And she has a mom who is depressed. And she never comes out of her room. And so she spends a lot of time talking to her mom through the door. And, um, and one day, and so one day she goes to her mother's room and she's gone and she doesn't know what happened. And so it's kind of a neighborhood story because it's a story of kind of girls raising themselves to a degree, her surrogating her younger siblings, but then also having to kind of move in this world where there's a neighborhood full of labels. So those are the two. I, I don't know why I'm telling you guys this, but I am. I guess we feel like family, you know? <laughs> But yeah, so those are the two ideas that are kind of floating around in my head. So I don't know. I'm, I'm outlining them both to see which one is going to say I'm next. I'm, I'm giving them both a shot to see which book is going to be the fourth book. So that is all. Unless anybody else have any more questions. Yes, we started it. That was, yeah, that we started a publishing. That was the book I couldn't get published. I couldn't get that one published. So we ended up. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It put me on the map. Sometimes you got to go the hard route to get to what you want. And that's what that's what we had to do with that book. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, the only book we published was Love in a Carry-On Bag. 
but it's still in existence. We still pay taxes on it. It's still there in case we want to um, do something in it. My personal desire is I don't necessarily want to do that much work. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, um, but we'll see what the bigger plan is, you know. Yeah, so we'll see. But it's still available. It's still there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's it's there. That's what I'll say. It's it's definitely there. Um we played around with some ideas for some children's books and I don't know, self publishing is so hard. I'm telling you, it is so much work. Um that I think the one of the bigger reasons why I wanted to have a publishing house back me so I don't have to wear all of those hats. And so for me, having St. Martin's Press take care of some of the stuff and I take care of some of the stuff, we're in a partnership. You know, I'm bringing what I knew from self-publishing, but they're bringing the experience of being a big house. Like to me, that that works, you know, that that works. So. Uh-huh. Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, of course. I would say the biggest thing to me, like the my biggest advice for self-publishing is to make sure you have a quality editor. I don't think I would have gotten anywhere without my editor is uh, Sharice Fisher, and she worked 17 years in publishing. She went to Yale. Um, she's just smart. She got me. We connected. I feel like she's the midwife to all my. I can. I mean, I probably can. I don't want to write a book without her. Um, so to me, that's the beginning is to have that quality editor who's going to pull those extra things out of you and make your work sing, and then it's the presentation of it. You know, when we set out with Loving to Carry On Back, our goal was always, I don't want you to know which one is 12th Street Press and which one is Simon & Schuster. When you're in the bookstore, I want you to pick them up and equally love them both and not know, you know, so the packaging and the typesetting and all of that, I think is really important. And then you just got to work hard. I mean, we went to every single book fair. I mean, anything up and down the East Coast is a lot of money. We spend a lot of money between the Harlem Book Fair and the Baltimore Book Fair and the Black Baltimore Book Fair and um, the National Book Con Conference in Atlanta. And I flew myself to Memphis for the Black Showcase and, like, just grinding, selling, you know, at any hair show or any type of conference where I knew there were going to be women who would probably want to read, I would buy a table and I would stand on my feet and I would vend the book. And sometimes the money would just even out. And sometimes I would make money. I didn't make a lot of, I didn't really make money as a self-published author, um, but I did get my name out. And I think that's probably what that first book was about was to get my name out, but you got to be ready to hustle, say yes to most opportunities and know how to spend your money properly because it is expensive and a lot of times there's too many too many tables there are too many authors at some of these events and you know you spent $75 and you only sell two books so you got to kind of weigh your options and figure out the best way to to get it done yeah I 
as a as a head at the head care loving to carry on back i wrote in both voices the first novel so i wrote that in both voices so it was a few chapters in erica's voice and it was a few chapters in warren's voice and you got both of their perspectives um right now i don't have anything in my head that's pushing a lead male character uh if i write about the girl whose mom is depressed in Philadelphia, I feel like her dad is going to be pretty big in the story, but it's whether or not he gets to, you see him through her eyes or if he has a voice. I haven't figured that part out yet. Because I want to write kind of like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Diane McKinney Whetstone. So I just finished her book, Lazarado. Oh my gosh. Yes, it came out in April. I just finished it last week. I loved it but I really loved how she changed perspectives throughout the book which I I don't I don't know how she did it I've been I was reading the book and I was kind of studying like like she would just do like not even a you know some people write a chapter like so you know this whole chapter is in Erica's voice well she was kind of doing it right in the midst of the story and it worked and so I'm like I'm trying to study like how do you do that I've never I've never done that before and so she wrote from a lot of people's perspectives in that book yeah, that was, that's a good book. I loved it. Yeah. I tweeted about it, and she tweeted me back. And so, listen, I'm like, when an author tweets me and says something to me, it's like, you know, it's like a big, it's big, you know? And she's like, I want to read Second House from the Corner. I'm like, ah! <laughs> you know, that's my celebrities. You know, those are my uh, Carrie Washingtons. You know, somebody says something to me. So, so, Yeah. Hmm. I leave the door open for sequels. The door is open for a sequel for Love in a Carry-On Bag. I kind of even have a beginning, um, I have a beginning idea. I don't know if the burn is there to write it. Uh, with Second House from the Corner, I also left the door open. Um, I can tell you since you read it, but do you remember when, um, she goes to visit her mom in the hospital and that ledger, and it was a name on the ledger and she couldn't figure out who it was. That was me leaving the door open for, if I wanted to write a sequel, we can go into that little space right there. But if you know, it's, it's not obvious, but it's just a door open for me. If I want to write, write a sequel, um, I would go back a little bit, probably, but I could also write it forward, too. Yeah, yeah. I, lo- I love my flashbacks. They are so much fun to write when I write a flashback scene. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. If I write the Philadelphia story, I probably should write it, like, not in flashback, but flash it back. So I'm writing all in that time. Do you, you know what I mean? Like, um, so, the, yeah, so that's why I have these two ideas that are fighting me. Like, they both want to be written. I don't know which one is going to take the lead. We'll see. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was so nice and intimate. I feel like we're all family here. I told you guys all my business. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you.